Please turn with me to Galatians chapter 2 as we continue our study in the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 17 through 21 this morning as our focus. So again, as we come to God's word, let's go to him again in prayer and ask for his help with it. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we were reminded from the catechism this morning, we were reminded from the songs that we sing, we were reminded from the text that we will study together today, that it is your righteousness alone that sets us right before the Father. So Lord, we pray that you would help us. Because were it left up to us, we would have nothing to show. On our best days, our righteousness is near zero. So Lord, as we read from your word, we need hope. We pray that you would show us the hope therein. That we would cast aside the hopes that we place in a dying world and instead cast our cares upon you. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. As I read through this passage, it made me think of a movie. Uh, I know it happens a lot. That's okay. Um, you know me, and you know I love all things The Karate Kid. Uh, I even like the third movie, which shows a different kind of devotion to the whole uh, thing. Uh, but there's one movie that I had some trouble with concerning The Karate Kid uh, story. And that was the 2010 version that came out of The Karate Kid, which features a kid who learned about Kung Fu, oddly enough. But then Jackie Chan was in that movie, and so it kind of redeems the whole thing. And so it's totally totally worth watching because Jackie Chan is in that movie. Uh, he plays the mentor and Kung Fu teacher, Mr. Han. And throughout the movie, Mr. Han can be seen restoring this old car in his garage. And you don't really hear about what's going on uh, with, the, with the car. You just see that he's doing it. You don't know why he's doing it. You just kind of assume that that's what he does. He fixes old cars. But then one night, his student shows up, and Mr. Mr. Han has had a little too much to drink, and he is taking a sledgehammer to this car that he had just previously restored to basically brand new. And then we find out the sad truth concerning this car and Mr. Han is that he was driving that car and was in an accident, and that accident killed his wife and his small child. And so every year, he fixes the car up, then on the anniversary of their deaths, he smashes it again and relives the trauma over and over in our passage today, we see a similar kind of idea. Paul is at odds with the Judaizer faction of the church. Why is he at odds with them? Well, they're saying that circumcision is necessary, and it's a necessary requirement of salvation. As we learned last week, this caused a major rift in the church. In fact, Peter and Paul, two apostles, kind of had a falling out over it. Yet, Peter stuck to his guns and reiterated that justification doesn't come through our works. 
and instead through the works of Christ. So we look at this passage, we continue, we're going to continue to unpack that idea. In fact, that's pretty much what we're going to be doing until we get through this whole series in this book. It is still the biggest issue in the church today. It just takes a different form. It always has. It'll be around until Jesus comes back. The more that we know about our own hearts, the more that we will be able to rest Instead of resting in our own works, instead resting in the risen Lord, our Lord Jesus. So as we consider this passage, we'll have two main ideas. What was destroyed, and then what has been created. So look with me again at the text, Galatians chapter 2, starting at verse 17. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Galatians 2, starting at verse 17. But if our, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For though, or for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So again, a little context bringing us forward together. We looked at the conflict between Peter and Paul and how it was resolved last week. It was resolved with Paul bringing Peter back to the gospel. That his salvation had nothing to do with him being Jewish, but instead had to do with the work of Christ. That is the overall theme and tension of this book. Again, that Jewish ceremony doesn't add anything at all to one's righteousness. Look at verses 15 and 16 from chapter 2 from last week. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This capped off that idea that we were talking about, which kind of brings us forward into our passage today. This idea of justification, this whole concept of justification, this is central to the Christian faith. It's not a side issue at all. Martin Luther is quoted to say, and you probably heard this quotation, Justification is the article by which the church stands or falls. If you think that's a bit overblown, look at what almost happened between these two apostles in this passage, Peter and Paul. Look at what happens anytime we replace the true gospel with our own version of righteousness. Though we aren't justified by works, it doesn't mean that we stop doing good works, though. As we'll get into that, or as we get in our text today, we'll see that idea. Oftentimes, you'll you'll hear old preachers 
and they'll speak of the full gospel, or they'll speak of they'll speak of both halves of the gospel. What they are talking about is the two components that are at work in our salvation. One one of them often gets talked about more than the other. The first that gets talked about the most is, of course, Christ's death on the cross. He took our sins and he removed them. Absolutely. That's a wonderful thing. It needed to be done. We could not do it ourselves. But the other, just as important, is that he gave us then his righteousness. Because it wasn't as if once we had those sins removed, we were going to then just all of a sudden become good. We weren't. We needed something that was permanent. And it's through his righteousness that we are justified before a holy God. With his righteousness, we are counted righteous. So our salvation is a means. Our salvation is a means to live or is not a means to live. Sorry, a life of sin. On the contrary, it's just the opposite. We shouldn't be doing that if this has been changed in us. And that brings us to the first point. What was destroyed? Before we get into to 17, I want to make just a quick note about Paul's relationship with these Jewish Christians and their relationship with, with the gospel. Jewish Paul and the Jewish Christians agreed on one thing. They agreed that the grace of God was necessary to save sinners, that we are justified by faith. They agreed on that. But for Paul, it was by grace through faith alone. For the Jewish Christian, there was an addendum. For these Christians in play here, there was an addendum. One must add circumcision to the righteousness of Christ. So in this following verse, Paul is demonstrating why a saved person need not add anything. Again, this is the thesis statement of Galatians. This little passage here, 15 through 21, is kind of like the starting point and the whole rest of the book is going to kind of tease that out. So these seven verses are very dense. This is why we spent a little bit of time on them. So let's look at verse 17 again. Verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Paul asks a rhetorical question here. He does this a lot in his writings. So if we're saved, what he's basically saying, if we're saved and we still sin, which we do, we're saved and we still sin, then Christ's work really didn't do anything, right? Does that mean that Jesus was wrong when he said it would? What could Jesus have been wrong about? Well, Jesus said, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. In other words, the fact that you do special things as a Jewish person in this context, or us in any context that we live in, the fact that we do some sort of special things keeps us from needing Him. No, we still need Jesus. That was in Matthew 15, which is really funny about what Jesus said in Matthew 15, because as soon as He said that, it's not what goes out of the mouth, or not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out. As soon as He said that, one of His disciples walked up to Him and He says, Did you know that the Pharisees were offended by what you just said? Of course they were. Just like the Judaizers were offended by Paul. They thought circumcision 
is what saved them. They thought not eating lizards and pigs is what saved them. They thought washing their hands a certain way is what saved them and gave them more righteousness than the ones who didn't do that. So in verse 17, Paul is saying essentially the same thing. Our justification doesn't mean that we're not going to sin. And to that end, being without sin isn't what justifies a person in the first place at all. Continues in verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Keep going to 19. For though the law, or for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Paul's using some interesting terms here concerning rebuilding and tearing down. These two words specifically have to do with tearing down and building structures like a house, like tearing down a house and then building that house back up again. Verse 19 helps us more to understand what he's saying in 18. I died to the law. That structure that was holding me up, the law, that was once holding me up, now has been destroyed. So when I try to rebuild that structure, I'm trying to build something that was incapable of holding me up in the first place. It's incapable of doing nothing, in fact. It's like Mr. Hahn building that car every year just to destroy it again. When I was a kid, going to church camp and hearing speakers play on my emotions was a pretty normal thing. You all, if you've been to church camp, you've been through this experience, I promise. By the end of this week of not having a whole lot of sleep and having a lot of sugar and not so good food and being around a hundred other teenagers, my emotional bubble, of course, was about ready to just pop and spill all over the place. And that's exactly what happened around Thursday night of every year of church camp. The speaker would get up there and he would tell some sort of story that kind of tugged on my emotions and made me start to feel bad. I would walk up front as the music was playing for the umpteenth time. I would cry a little bit, tell God that I would try to do better again next year. And then sometime later that evening, forget that I had ever had that conversation. Rinse, repeat every year, build the thing, smash the thing, maybe build it better next time. Maybe I won't have to smash it next time. Do you understand the problem here, brothers and sisters in Christ? The modern church has even come up with a super spiritual way to talk about this because what I just said wasn't very spiritual at all. So we use super spiritual words to talk about this destruction and rebuilding of the law over and over and again in our lives. We call it rededication. Well, I was saved when I was six at BBS, but, but I rededicated my life when I was fill in the blank with the most recent emotional experience that made you feel close to God. In many places, they'll even redo the sacrament of baptism along with this feeling, hoping that maybe this time it will do the trick, which tells us something about what people believe about baptism as well. This time is going to be different. This time I'm going to make Jesus proud. 
Or we'll say, of course, I don't, and we'll say along with that, of course I don't believe in work salvation. Say that out of one side of our mouth, and out of the other we'll say, I feel so far away from Jesus, I need to work harder to be closer to him. This is the great dilemma of the Christian life. We'd like to think that we're immune to it. We'd like to say, I don't believe in that works righteousness garbage, but we sure do talk like we do. As soon as we start looking around and seeing who's better or worse at this, we start rebuilding that car again right there with Mr. Hahn. Rebuilding it, hoping this time it will hold us up. There's only one answer here, Christians. And it's not a quippy list of do this now. The answer is the God-man, Jesus Christ. That brings us to the second point. What has been created? Look with me at verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is a verse that a lot of people speak of. It's kind of their life verse, and that's, that is great. It's a great thing. But it's also a verse that's been used so much that I think sometimes we can miss the context of what's going on around here and what Paul is trying to say to us. I mean, if look, look, look with me with it with verse 19. Look again. We'll, we'll read 18 through 20. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I proved myself to be a transgressor, for through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified. I died to the law. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am dead to the law because I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer me. It's Christ who lives in me. So understand what Paul's saying here. In Christ, we have Christ living in us. When you consider that paired with what we previously read, you realize quickly why it makes no sense for us to then pick up the law and try to make it again. Try to listen, okay, maybe this time I can figure it out. This is a life lived by flesh, not by faith. That means that though we live in the flesh, that though we struggle with sin, that though we have sin all around us, in fact, we do not, it does not have to live in us. In fact, brothers and sisters in Christ, sin cannot do that. Look with me at Romans 6. Romans 6, the first five verses. Written by the same guy, and it's going to seem like it was written by the same guy, because it's basically the same stuff. It's worded in a different way, using some different words. Keep in your minds what we were just reading in Galatians 2, and let's look at the first five verses of Romans 6. And stay there, because we're going to read a little bit further. What shall I say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? What was he just saying? Sin doesn't live in me, Christ lives in me. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. 
How can we who died in sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We're buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. When he wrote to the Romans, he said the same things. He just had a different way of speaking. Rather than saying that we've been crucified with Christ, he said here that we were baptized into his death. It's not a passage about the mode of baptism. No matter how many times people want to say that. It's a passage about the Christian being dead to sin. When Jesus died, he was buried. Yet he rose from the grave. In Christ, our old self was buried. A new creation was born, raised to walk in newness of life. How goofy would it be for us in that new life then, this new life that we have, raised to walk in newness of life, for us to go back into the grave and to put that old self back on? I just thought I wanted to see what it felt like again. Why would we do that? It doesn't make any sense. That's why he continues, verses 6 and 7, back in Romans 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. The old body was brought to nothing, literally here rendered inoperative. It no longer functions. The old life has no sway on us any longer, no power at all. What's the result of that then? If the old life no longer functions, well, it can no longer enslave us. It can no longer harm us. If we have died with Christ, we have been set free from sin. This is a big deal because remember what the rest of Scripture says. You read it in Judges this morning. What does Scripture tell us concerning our sin? That we're born in sin. We're born in this sin nature. We're born, our whole nature is corrupted. We couldn't make a good thing even if we wanted to. And you combine that with our actual transgressions, the sins that we actually commit, and then we are done for. But in Jesus, we are set free from that. The chains fell off. It's like we sang a minute ago. Our hearts were free. We rose, went forth, and we followed thee. We are liberated. And two things happen. We're set free from sin, meaning that the guilt of the original sin is gone. That whole thing that we're born with is now gone. We're raised. We're a new creation. But we also have the righteousness of Christ. Jesus didn't have corruption. He didn't have that original sin. He's the God-man. Not only did he not have original sin, but he never actually sinned either. And so he had real righteousness. So when we read that he became sin, that we might become his righteousness, he took that old nature, that old self, and he nailed it to the cross. He, it was crucified with him. And he gave us then his perfect righteousness. The old nature has been crucified 
even though we still sin, we still struggle, those sins are not counted against us because we have the perfect righteousness of Christ. He took all of our sins, all of them, past, present, and future. There's no need for me then to do good in order to earn righteousness. I started at zero. I'm now at a hundred. That can never change. Never. I can't lose anything. And so even if I could add something, it would be completely unnecessary. Which is exactly what Paul says back in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If I could add to my righteousness through my good works, then his death has no purpose at all. But since I can't, then his death is the only thing that matters. It liberates me. I no longer need to keep building up the old self and tearing it down. I need to see that it's gone forever. The cycle of feel bad, do better, feel good is broken. Christ did that and now I can rest. I don't need to fix anything. It's already been fixed. I don't need a yearly trip to the rededication station. If I did, then Jesus would need to die again for me. He would need to do it more often. Understand, this is our issue with Roman Catholicism. They celebrate the Mass every week because they believe that Jesus needs to die again every week for our sins because our own works are part of that equation. And if he doesn't die again every week, then my own works are nothing. They believe that so much that they have a priest ready to hear your confession and give you a way to pay it off in the meantime by doing something. It's sad because they also have Galatians in their Bible. You cannot work your way into God's favor. Jesus already did. And we have Jesus. So what do we do? Most Christians, we do not live a life apart from good works. In fact, we are called to a life of good works. We've been created for good works, is what we read in Ephesians 2, that we should walk in them. We'll talk more about this next week. But it's never wrong for a Christian to do good things, to practice spiritual disciplines, to desire holiness, to actively be killing sin in our lives. We should be doing that. Yet, when we measure our status with God based on our ability to do those things, we start to buy into the lie of the Judaizers. Christians, rest. Rest in Jesus. I've been saying that a lot lately. Why have I been telling you to rest a lot? Because rest is the opposite of work. Rest. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He will give rest for your souls. If there's any unbelievers here, hear this. Rest. Rest in Jesus. What does the world offer you? Only the opposite. And it doesn't even reward you for your good works either. It doesn't. It only scoffs and it only wants more. Jesus doesn't want more from you because you can't give him anything that he doesn't already have. He doesn't want anything. Believe in him. 
He's done it all. He gave his life as a ransom for many so that those who believe might have eternal life, call upon his name and be saved. In conclusion, brothers and sisters in Christ, let's stop rebuilding and tearing down our old self. It's gone. It's been crucified with Christ. Just like Mr. Hahn with that old car. Rather than relive the old, let's realize that it's been thrown out. Jesus did it. Believe the truth of the gospel. Proclaim that truth to the lost world. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to you, we pray, help us. Why do we continue to cling to the old self that has been crucified with you? Why do we think that we can somehow earn your favor when we couldn't possibly be loved by you more and we couldn't possibly be loved by you any less? Lord, we pray that you would draw us close, that you would keep us close, that your word would seep even to our very souls, that we would learn the truth of the gospel and that we would rest in you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.